Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. Locke Kressler, thank you for joining me and George O'Dell for another Live Art Market Pulse podcast. We've just finished an intense week of sales in all the major auction houses here in New York, preceded by the Paul Allen sale, which should give us more than enough to talk about. But I thought we'd start getting your impressions from the week. Yeah, I mean, it's been a roller coaster two weeks. Uh, we started off with the Paul Allen sale, which having worked at Christie's for 10 years, and I know George has also had time at the auction house, is that it, the idea of achieving an auction that was over a billion dollars seemed wild to me at the time. Um, you know, having seen the block barrel works come up and some of these peaks in the market, my sense was that there was a bit of a ceiling to get to. And the fact that, you know, last season in New York, more of a combined total of the Maclow group, you know, almost crested that billion dollar mark, um, kind of gave us a sense that it, it could be achieved. And then Paul Allen's collection, which really only encompassed a portion of his collection, um, believe it or not, uh, came up and in the 60 lots they had in the the, the first, the, the part one auction, you know, crested not only a billion dollars, but one and a half billion dollars. And then, you know, kind of adding to that, you have the part two sale, which was another 1.6 billion, uh, 1.6, um, uh, sorry, $115 million, which just puts it to $1.6 billion. And it's, it's astonishing to think that that was all sold within two, two days, all part of a single owner collection. And one that wasn't just focused on post-war and contemporary impressions of modern, but looked, you know, really across the ages and, you know, the ultimate sort of trophy hunters collection. If you're at Christie's, there's a lot of work to be done with such a wide uh, collection. I mean, I I think what impresses me most is the call list for a collection like that has got to be enormous because there's so many works, different collectors, different price points. And then you have the day sale works, works were also uh, varied. And then everyone has to get back on that horse and do it all over again a week later for these various owner sales. And we saw, we're recording this the morning after um, Christie's second set of sales. We saw that they, they did that job. Uh, I'd even, you know, gotten the sense that it wasn't, you know, a foregone conclusion. They were still, you know, hammer and tongs the last couple of days, lining bidders up, and they got the sales done. So from your and George, I'd love to hear your perspective. What's it like going into those sales? I know you have like will make meetings and interest meetings leading up to, to it. But, you know, the day or two before, is it just dialing for dollars? Is just everyone out there with a long list of calls? I, you know, I think... Um, from one perspective, it's always hard to know if you're going to benefit from going first or last. The way the schedule worked out for Christie's in this regard, you know, they did clear, you know, a billion plus dollars set of auctions, which is no small feat. But you know, to be to be on the Thursday Friday of that schedule to understand how the other two houses have played out and where things got sticky for them and where you know they needed to adjust reserves, I think you saw that very much in action um, last night between what 
what had adjustments on it and what what sold just at the low or maybe there was expectation above and um, and so on and so forth. So I you know I I think that is a huge benefit there that they just had time to manage manage it, sell our expectations, get reserves set or pull things where you know they felt overly dead in the water. Um, you know I think that's the, that's their benefit because they they can see the rest of the week. Um, the day sale so far looks to be doing pretty well last time I checked in on it. So, no, I think the, the story of this week, and it's been the story of the last year of the market is it is very rare that we have a market that's performing on all ends. You know, we've had five, uh, hundred million dollar paintings sa- sell in the first part of the Allen sa- sale, and then a whole slew of eight figure paintings which that market comes and goes. It's not always that there's people out there to buy those kinds of uh, works. And then we've got all of this, you know, things in the 100,000 and emerging artists and all sorts of other uh, artists that there's a lot of uh, interest in. And usually there's a, a pendulum swing in one direction or another uh, we've ascribed most of this to sort of the global liquidity that there's just so much money out there, everyone's buying. But maybe that's just too easy uh, an explanation. Do you, do you have a sense of how it, it can be all? What's the movie everywhere all at once? I mean, it's a tricky one because you know we're constantly sort of looking at ourselves by comparison to the financial markets, real estate markets, things that are happening you know adjacent to us, and time and time again. The art market tends to buck the trend. Um, I think this this week was, you know, a great case in point. You saw, you know, FTX implode, the cryptocurrency market go completely uh, downhill. Um, you know, there's been, you know, uh, war in Europe and Ukraine. You've got, you know, all these different, you know, aspects of inflation happening around the world and prices of oil, etc. And I think for some reason, art has always felt like a safe asset. It's something that can move around the world. It's something that can be bought for the most part in any currency. And it tends more and more to be seen as another part of someone's portfolio. Um, and one that you can actually live with and enjoy rather than just see with the stock. Um, but that said, you know, a lot it, it's hard to sort of fathom some of these numbers that we were seeing this week and last. I always tend to tended to take the view that the evening sale was like a couture fashion show and the day sale was the right aware that's where the money tends to be kind of made the margins are better usually um and it seems like all the day sales did very well um uh, you know the Sotheby's day sale performed very strongly they had 15 works that sold over a million dollars they had one sell over four at my time you know I, I i worked in the day sales in new york i ran one of them in, in london having a four million dollar work in my sale is like mind-boggling i can remember um, the first million dollar sale in a sotheby's london day sale and it was it's like a glenn brown and it was mind-boggling that you could get yeah. to those values and that's standard issue now but yeah, i think i the, mean but I, but I think if you look at the sell-through rate at sotheby's yesterday at 84 percent, that's ooh. a much different trend than what's happened over the last few seasons where we've seen white glove day sales in hong kong and clearly 90 sell through 90 percent sell-through rates in new york I think what we what we felt is individual grouping for against certain lots where the value will just shoot up really high, hard to find things, really A plus examples. But I think we've also seen fatigue where there's 10 plus Ernie Barnes on the market, right? Exactly. Things like that. So I think I think that we've gotten back to these, we don't make catalogs, they don't make catalogs anymore, but we've gotten back to these 
two inch thick day sale catalogs that I think, you know, there's just, that's just a glut of property and maybe that will have some trimming come next season. Uh, I'd say that's one of my, well, it's one of my hopes, but I think what we saw post pandemic really was a, a continued feeling of success in the marketplace in the sort of public square at auction at art fairs and more and more people felt uh, emboldened to have higher estimates. The auction houses felt emboldened to guarantee property. And you saw the same thing happen with people at third party guarantees and more this sale probably than last New York season, they sort of landed on a couple of, you know, a lot of third parties and the house landed on quite a few different guarantees or had to take pretty big haircuts. And I think what I would see in the next season and the next cycle, um, you know, obviously this one had a particularly high amount of either estate property or private collections, but I would suspect that people, especially with anything that's over 10, 20, $30 million is going to probably hold back on offering. Um, and if they are, they're going to want to have it, you know, maybe in a more conservative level, not trying to sort of push these levels to, you know, you look at the, the Mondrian and, um, you know, a, a few other works that sort of started out, the uh, Henry Moore, they were right at the cusp of if it lands on the low, low estimate, it's already a world record price. And I think we're going to see a lot less of that and more things that are conservative and it may chase up to those levels. But I think starting out the gate with these, these high, high prices is, is, is not something that's going to be sustainable in the next season. In that same logic too, I think we've seen in the kind of the VO sections of the evening sales, certainly in some of the younger evening sales and into the day sales and the trendier lots, I, I feel like we're going to see a lot less secondary purchasing straight to auction behavior because those margins are just thinning out or you know causing haircuts in places. So I think that trend of a source it, source it privately six months to a year, it appears at an auction is going to slow down significantly. Uh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, uh, I think, I think there's a, you know, the market needs a pullback and people need to get burned to make that happen. You know, the problem with all markets is while the music's playing, everyone needs to dance and without an external, you know, uh, stimulus that forces you to pull, pull back and, and for everyone to be able to point to it. And it's felt for a while that the market needed that. We've, we seem to have gotten almost a, a Goldilocks. Uh, there's a lot of private pain, but there's no major public pain out there. there. This is not a invalidating, you know, season where everyone just sort of st staring at their shoes, trying to, you know, disappear into the floor because things are, aren't selling. It's getting sold, but the, the, whatever the haircuts are, are, are being taken internally and the market can then recoup for the next go round. And I think that will have a knock on in some of the kind of language and feelings we've had around like multi-year lockups of private sales and all this kind of nonsense. I, you know, I think a lot of that stuff that people are requesting, some of it's non-egregious, but some of it becomes a bit egregious when you lay it all out. I think a lot of that will get peeled off as well, um, just as a sort of knock-on effect here. Locke, you work uh, for a gallery that specializes in a lot of classic 20th and um, you know modern art artists. And I'm curious to sort of hear your take on the Allen sales effect on the broader perception of the mar market. Will there be more interest in 
you know, uh, that period and those works. Certainly the value is there. I mean, one of the funny things about these markets is the average lot value is much higher in the 20th century, the modern and earlier works. But the overall numbers for the sales are bigger in the later 20th century and uh, contemporary. And so people somewhat get distracted. Part of that's just sort of su survivor bias and, uh, and all. But it, if there's going to be a flight to quality, I would think it's in the kinds of markets that you deal in regularly. Uh, but maybe you don't see it that way. No, I definitely see it that way. Uh, you know, I started out my sort of young career at Christie's really focusing on the kind of hyper hyper contemporary, you know, sort of these, these young movements. And I watched the sort of ebb and flow of them and much to my chagrin, because I was very passionate about a lot of these artists, but it's, it's sort of sad to see the sort of markets go up and down. And what I think was been, has been nice about the more modern con uh, sort of sector, if you will, there is this stability and there is a kind of blue chip stamp on it. And they've already, you know, there's, they're not making any more work in, in most cases. There's a limited supply and more and more of the works year on year end up in museum collections. So the rarity factor really hones in on that. And for me, I've kind of had this arc in my career of going farther backwards. And, you know, it is interesting to talk to collectors, you know, it's just an art lecture the, the other night and the amount of people who asked me about NFTs and crypto and young emerging people. And our clear message was, you know, you want to buy something that not only that you love and something that you can understand, but that has a history and that artist made art history, that they changed something in the world, that they created a new form of visual language for the, the next generation and influenced that next generation. And I think more and more people are kind of acknowledging that. I mean, when you can buy, you know, a fairly good Picasso for the same price you can a George Kondo, it kind of starts to make sense when you see these numbers. And you saw a real dip, I think, this season and in London versus six months ago with the artists under 40. You know, they were making consistently multi-million dollar levels. And this season, you didn't see it really that much in terms of the kind of overall crazy bidding. But I think equally, there was in the Allen, Allen sale, the sense of rarity and sense of quality that you do need to sort of, I don't know, spark that, 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 um, that desirability within that sort of field. And more and more, I'm talking to people that are sort of, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, that are looking back at that, that are wanting to have a sense of history, that are wanting to have a connection to something that does have, you know, a long exhibition history or has had this great provenance to it um, versus something that is, you know, wet paint that is, you know, was painted two years ago and now coming up at auction. The, the social currency of having, you know, one of the artists that everyone's talking about. We always call it the buy with your eyes, not with your ears. <laughs> So, so I noticed that, I mean, there were some uh, uh, two uh, Jean Arp works. There were actually a lot of small sculpture that did very, very well. Um, there was a lot of Paul Clay on the market, mostly because Solinger and um, Paul Allen both had several uh, works. And there, I don't know, that may be more Paul Clay works that have sold in the last few weeks than have sold in the last uh, couple of years. But it's interesting too on like Solinger that, that again this is like another collector's collection I think or kind of sort of I I find it in a way different material but analogous to Amon round one right the material was great 
if you have fully drank the Kool-Aid on these artists and the great things like the art sculpture, you know, fine. But overall, you know, I think if there was a feeling of tepidness against Alan, it was kind of blockbuster v proper collector collecting for personal taste. And it's great to kind of have that sense of history behind all of the works, especially when it came to the Giacometti sculpture, where, you know, he, he was actually in, in, in saw Giacometti in the studio. He had, there was this interesting dialogue that happened with him where he had um, purchased a work through Pierre Matisse Gallery and it was damaged upon arrival in the United States. He then had it obviously shipped back to the studio. And whilst it was there, he had seen works that were painted that he had done in Europe uh, through mugs and requested him to paint it. So it's these kind of things that you don't get, you know, that same connection. And it's the fact that, you know, a lot of these works were sort of, you know, are now being sold through the family. Um, but it's just such a rare thing to get that. And it's the same thing with the Paley collection. Um, you know, that's all, you know, sitting in MoMA for the last, you know, since 1990 uh, after his death. Um, Can we go back to the Solinger? I was kind of uh, uh, amazed that the success of that de Kooning collage, which was spectacular and made a fantastic $33 million price, didn't really seem to have any effect on the rest of the de Kooning mar market, you know, which all sort of sold, you know, privately in public uh, and, and one, you know, where they just got caught out and, uh, you know, ha had to eat it. I think, yeah, I, mean, I just think that Solinger picture felt, oh, sorry, look, uh, yeah. that Solinger picture felt really special. I mean, not the, the estate painting, you know, were great. They were great when I saw them in Paris. They were great in the galleries, the beautiful examples. But I don't. I just think we hadn't seen something like that Solinger piece with a with the thumbtacks in it, and there was a, you know the female form in the upper left quadrant of it. You know, it had so so much more going to it for it that we just hadn't experienced in the auction markets as of late to that to that degree of quality. I think is what really drove that. It felt more. It just felt rarer and more special in that regard. And that's the that's sentiment I got from other people. Well, it's and the the estate works were very fully priced. Going back to uh, Locke's earlier po point, it was very hard to convince someone. I mean, the only thing you could think is that oh, if this collage is now thirty million, doesn't it mean some of these other works are worth more? But th that just didn't play out, and and that may be because the the people who would have spent that kind of money were already eyeing any of the two or three dozen other uh, eight-figure works that sold uh, over the last two weeks. I mean, I think you could see that through line through a lot of different works, but, and I was somewhat, I didn't want to be in the shoes of people at, you know, Christie's, Sotheby's or Phillips following the Allen sale, because when you see an auction like that, it's hard to convince a seller that they need to bring their reserve down. And I would say the story of last, this past week is, bringing the reserve down, matching it with a buyer, getting things done. You know, I had clients asking me about suggestions on very complex guarantees where they were kind of gifting two guarantees versus, but you kind of had to take on a really tough picture that's probably going to land on you um, and the sort of packaging of guarantees. Um, and, you know, I have to say hats off to them. They did a very good job of, of balancing that, but it was an uphill battle for any specialist to try and, you know, speak with a collector and say, the market's actually, you know, we need to get this a, a little bit of room here because, the, the market's not receiving it the same way when there was $1.6 billion spent the week before. <laughs> yeah. But, but in those younger markets, it's definitely the terminology was we are in a changing market, you know, the yeah. tune quickly changed. 
from great examples with star power backing it to we are in a changing market. And I think we saw that not just in the ultra young, but in also some of those niche markets of mid-career artists where the auction prices look big, but they're kind of touching primary if you peel back the curtain and things like that. Yes, the touching primary is the big issue there, which goes back to your point about the waiting lists and the um, uh, agreements uh, locking things up uh, and all. It's like That will more, more likely take care of itself rather than the uh, uh, the the threat of a you know a lawsuit you know around one of those agreements. Yeah, I think that like the Jacqueline Humphreys is a perfect example because she has a show on right now in the city, and that painting made eight fifty all in. And you look back at Primary, which has been steadily growing, and I think is at seven right now. So it's sort of you know it's not a total wash, but it's you know the seller gets gets out close to Primary, what current Primary, and the buyer pays a little bit of premium for what is a very good example of her work. And it, but against the auction records, which I followed for a long time, it's, it looks phenomenal on paper, but it's, you know, if you, if you take the whole macro view of it, we're kind of just marrying up two sides of the market. Well, if you, if you've been participating, I mean, most likely you're paying that at auction because you couldn't get one of the works from uh, uh, any of the dealers. So, so you, you already know what you're dealing with, with there and you're willing to at least pay that premium to get a hold of it, but it doesn't, it limits that uh, market. Yeah. It's just a difference of like X factor. That's not there. I, I wanted to bring up something about the Warhol market, speaking of sort of a changing world, I know the the white disaster, you know, didn't really uh, uh, perform, but I noticed there were lots of strong bids on some of the Amman works, some of these other uh, works floating around the day sales. And last night at Christie's, um, I believe on the self-portrait and then on uh, the hammer and sickle, uh, the Mugrabis were finally bidding again on Warhols. And I kind of wondered if, does that mean we've sort of reached some sort of a bottom in the Warhol mar- market? Uh, the the prints, there was a print portfolio of Maryland's that sold for, I don't know, almost $4 million. Yeah, yeah. The, print portfolio, the print market's its own beast, and especially if you've got a complete set, right? That, the print market's been going bananas, much like the used car market, not that prints are used cars, but... You know, they, there is a kind of all of a sudden it was like it was impossible to buy prints a year ago, more so than unique works. That was that was what was trading the hardest. I'm not sure prints aren't used cars in the best possible sense of uh, maybe we should call them vintage cars. Uh, but but the the Warhol print market is just evidence that like Warhol's not outdated or, you know, who knows who Marilyn Monroe and um, Elizabeth Taylor are kind of uh, thing. Like his imagery is, uh, people are willing to pay serious money for his I- imagery. And then to see both his activity in, in a lot of these other not common images and to see the the people with the longest experience in the Warhol, well, one of the groups uh, with, with long experience in the Warhol market, who've been notably absent for, I don't know, it's like six or seven years uh, now since they stopped um, really visibly participating to be sitting there in the audience in Christie's and raising a paddle on two. Now, I mean, I think those were Amon works, so that's some element, but it, it just sort of says, hey, we're here, and that may sort of be, at least to you know the outsiders, a, a signal that there's, you know, people coming back to the Warhol market. I was just going to say, I mean, Warhol always has this sort of cultural currency. I think um, there was a bit of a kickstart, which then kind of petered out after the um, 
shot Sage Blue Maryland came up from the Yvonne collection. I mean, there seemed to be this just flurry around Warhol, Warhol. And I'm not sure the white disaster was the right thing to follow up with. Not that, you know, we do this in some sort of film trilogy uh sort of aspects but you know it is what a marvel universe of warhol like what how do you schedule everything yeah i mean it, it it's it you know we're, we're in sort of a marketplace where we take what we can get but you know it's a picture that kind of had been around obviously at a much higher price um and you know it was a substantial work but it also came in with a substantial estimate and my sense of it is is that in the kind of general sort of sub Two million. There's definitely a market out there. People love it. It's got that cultural cachet that that people love to have. But it hasn't been the same sort of you know anything Warhol will pay whatever um, that it was in that sort of fever pitch of like 2007, 2008. Um, well, well, even 17, 2017. Whenever um, the Orange Maryland sold privately, uh, you know that seems to have been kind of the peak of that. Uh, you know market from 2004 or five up to 2017. And so it would make sense that there'd be a bit of a pause. And one could even say that the Maryland sold in the down market, which it may be why, uh, you know, Gagosian uh, uh, bought it being one of the better experts on the Warhol market uh, uh, out there. And so oddly, it might actually be, like I said, I'm, I'm just trying to gin up this idea that that rather than this being a top for the Warhol market, this may be sort of the, the bottom from which things might build over time. It's not going to happen tomorrow uh, or even, you know, uh, next season. It may take a, a, a while uh, for things to build up, but you can make the case that these things are, are relatively cheap. Anything else out there that you You've noticed in the sales that you guys follow that you think uh, were either is cheap or seeing movement on? I mean, it was interesting, I think, for both the first lots um, in Christie's evening auction and in their always confusing evening contemporary, whatever it is. But, you know, you had a um, sort of world record price for this um I never pronounced the first name right, John Quick to see Smith, who's, you know, Native American artist. Um, I think they were sort of reading the tea leaves from a breakout sort of price that, that happened at Hinman. It is a great example, beautiful painting. Um, you know, she's represented in MoMA, The Walker, The Met, Whitney, uh, National Gallery now. So it's it's nice to kind of see that they're sort of acknowledging that. And I think that was, you know, a great, great price to see. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be more kind of focus on these. You know, she's 82 years old. She's got a great career. She's had lots of exhibitions. And I think that's the sort of discovery that you're seeing more and more with a lot of these artists. Um, and that, I think that, that that's the Howard Dina Pindell story too. They they their second million dollar price, following almost the same thing. An artist with a great career, but invisible to the secondary market or at least the auction market, suddenly you know emerging at a level uh, you know f far different from what you would see. Yes. Yeah. Mar or like Martin Wong, if you want to take the Hinman story and push it back, you know, it's <laughs> another one. So. 
where they got they got the big price, and then there was a, a number of very excellent examples that appeared in New York after that. It, it was also really interesting to see the um, Crosby retrade at a higher price. Uh, you know, there's someone who started all of this, the African diaspora pa- painters uh, and figurative pa- painting, and to come back five years la- later and command a higher price is a great sign. Uh, you know, she's well managed, got a great gallery that that shouldn't be a surprise, though. I think, and I think that's the exact story there, right? It's just we haven't seen anything of note come back onto the market like since that flurry of big pictures that was kicked off by Sotheby's, I think, in like what 15 or 16 with that first sale of the of the work um yeah that's just like perfectly well managed and shows that there's just a lack of stock out there but that you know there's still a strong demand for well well made well crafted artworks there was there was a danger of her going like the toma apps route where there's just like no material and yeah. people just move on exactly. <laughs> well that that is a big problem I and mean, that's that that's not something to uh, you know, scoff at it. It's a, the Barnes is interesting because we keep seeing material co- uh, come. Sort of some strange things happen. Like the there was a, a ridiculously low estimate on the Ernie Barnes at um, Christie's la- last night. That didn't last long, but a, a, a painting that sells for almost a million dollars, starting with a sixty thousand uh, dollar low estimate, just seems. Uh, I'm presuming that was coming from outside. That the people at Christie's, you know, uh, weren't choosing that as the estimate to start with probably not i mean but they you know they did it with lynn drexler in a mid-season sale too with the, that first yeah. big painting from the farnsworth yeah and, and anything you guys saw or that sort of sparked either you know in the artists themselves or in a sort of comparison hey if that artist is this then I'm, i should be doing that i thought you know artists of personal interest i thought the sale that for the x that christie's clocked at one five even if it was sort of thin against the estimate was a really, I mean, when's the last time we saw a public auction sale of a Guyton above a million dollars, let alone not a flaming you. Like, and that was a great picture by the artist. Um, but when you take that in comparison, you know, the 1992 computer painting, um, which was one, if not the best computer painting ever to hit the public market, you know, made a big price. And then every other Albert Olin on the market failed or was withdrawn. From the day yeah. sale lot at Phillips to the Amon one, but is that because you can connect the the Erling computer painting to Humphreys and um, Avery Singer? I don't Avery think those bidders were the same. Maybe the Humphreys to Olin bidders, but I mean that Olin's a very sophisticated painting. Yeah, you know it's 1992. It's a great provenance. Like it's that's a fantastic picture. Whereas I, you know, I think some of the other stuff is like you know more people know about it, right? I think you have to really understand Olin to get why a black and white computer painting is so important. No, I look that they're, they're that's the kind of painting that seems like you sell it privately or you occasionally see them at art fairs. So it was interesting that it went to to auction. Mm-hmm. Totally. And and the Alex Katz market you know, still hasn't caught up with the general interest. Uh, I mean, the prices, nothing's really moved. There's an, I mean, the three, three gray dresses at Phillips, that's another picture that was out in the market with a bigger price tag associated with it before it finally landed at, at Phillips. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that many of the cats works were particularly interesting. You know, I would have thought the 1970s group painting would have come out or something like that caliber during this retrospective period but 
from everyone I spoke with, no one was really blown away by the Oxcat show. And in some ways, I think it almost had like a reverse effect where it just felt repetitive and uninspiring. Um, and sometimes that has a negative of effect if someone has a, a big retrospective like that. I mean, usually when the Guggenheim has a show, the market goes up, uh, I prints or wool, but, um, yeah, in this case, I, I agree there weren't great examples, but Rauschenberg at Tate was another instance in which you thought a market was going to really move. And actually I think the Tate show like put the, put the fire out on it, you know, or it like solidified the market around like the 1950s and like, and yeah. then there was kind of everything else. Uh, uh, Chamberlain at the Guggenheim was the same thing. Right. A, a big build up, uh, uh, the works, you know, good works sell, but no big change in the prices. And then people trying to sell stuff for prices that just couldn't, you know, could, couldn't make a deal. All right. Is that, that it? We got any other pet uh, projects or, uh, I was just going to say it was, you know, I usually try and be as analytical as possible when looking at, you know, works, going through history of works, trying to sort of make those comparisons and the sale last last, last night at Christie's, you know, the Coons train, um, you know, they put a conservative, what I would call a conservative estimate on an artist whose, you know, career isn't necessarily at like a high point at the moment. Um, but this I always find is sort of a rarefied work. And considering that the last one that came up as a full train set, arguably was 2014, sold for $33 million, I assume there would have been at least people sort of pushing that up to a higher number. And the fact that it was estimated 15 to 20, sold for 14.5 hammer was a little bit surprising, but also kind of not surprising, but surprising. And then um, equally, the um, work coming from the Agnes Gunn Foundation, um, that beautiful mirror. I had high hopes for that. I love that painting. It's beautiful. I'm a huge fan of the mirror paintings. And considering that last season, there was one from the same size, same year, and made $6 million, um, you would have thought that it would have sort of at least had legs to go. And it sold below the low estimate at 2.6. So, do, do you think that's a function of there's just so much going on and some of those things got lost with the, you know, all the sales, all the artists. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the most telling thing about the Coons sale was that it was one bid, I presume a guarantor, and that sort of said, you know, confirmed everyone's worst fear about the Coons market is it's just dormant that all the production problems are still, you know, plaguing um, uh, demand for these works. And even something that's, you know, historical like that just doesn't get anyone uh, excited. And yes, there was such a track record for those mirrors that seemed... If, if maybe not a no-brainer, but certainly that it wouldn't sell for, I don't know, some half the, two-thirds the uh, estimate. I mean, uh, no one showed up for it. I mean, it's the same thing for the Robert Gober that came up in Sotheby's. I love that work, this for Drain. And, you know, it's addition of two plus one artist proof. The artist proof is in DICA Miami. And the last time one came up in 2018 was the record for Gober and made $7.2 million. And this was estimated six to eight and hammered at $3 million. Um, it's it's a tricky situation because you, know, you kind of are expecting sort of precedent. I mean, similarly for like the Robert Irwin, it's different from the painting that came up in Maclow's collection, but that was, you know, seven times the world record price. And then this work comes up again 1967 work fails to find a buyer. And and they've said that 
privately, uh, Pace had sold uh, uh, either a, a similar work or another work from the edition, I can't remember the, that's an edition, work for a lot more than that was priced at, and they couldn't find a buyer. And they, I thought Sotheby's did a great job presenting it. They had a sort of bay constructed for it. It was, you know, ethereal, luminous, spooky, all the things that you would uh, want from or that he intended from those works. It's it's light and art, but also sort of hyper, con you know, not hyper conceptual, but conceptual work like Gober. I always find one is, is a product of the galleries and sort of myth making that galleries are able to do. And it's not to the discredit of any specialist or, you know, there's a lot of specialists who love Gober and like really know what they're talking about. But I've, I've said it before, I think it's true that, you know, one one week in an essay in a catalog is not enough time to maybe tell the story on these things. You're you're out there looking for people who already know what they're looking at. And I, I mean, similarly, like the Ch Charlie Ray market, right? You know, this yeah. stuff all gets placed and it goes through an it goes through an exhibition catalog and it's just mega private museum after mega private museum. And that's very similar with Gober. I think, you know, going out there and finding a kind of retail client for a drain is a very tall ask or Robert Irwin, you know, bubble installation. I, I know one client. I, <laughs> go ahead. Sir. There wasn't, I was just saying there was an underbidder at, you know, $6 million from the last mm -hmm. time you came up. So, and that was, you know, four years ago. So you'd think that yeah. there'd at least be someone else that was out there willing to push it up higher or, or get, or get a bargain. Or they found, but in six years, maybe they found one or something that scratches the Everyone's edge in a museum. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's, a I didn't say anything like for like, right? Like maybe they found a double drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, but it's similar. Like if you look at uh, the kind of Tony Shafrazi group that came up, you know, most of which did well, but he had a, um, a Christopher Wool painting that he had bought at Sotheby's in 2015 and he paid three million eight hundred ninety thousand dollars for it and then it was estimated two to three two and a half to three and a half and sold for two hammer so you know you're it's it, when you kind of peel back some of the layers you see these things and you know yes they've got a great sell-through rate but well that that's the bad part about collections i mean the uh, and maybe this is a, a good final uh, point for this podcast so much of the um because of uh, george likes to say this all the time because of the age of the collectors uh, there is a lot of people whose collections are have come on the market the last two or three years and will continue over the next uh, a few but the problem with that is you're selling stuff because it needs to be sold, not because there's a, necessarily a market or the right demand, but you're, everyone has their reference points based on other periods in the market. And wool's a great example. I don't think anyone wants to bring a Christopher Wool to market right now. There's been so much buying since the um, Guggenheim uh, uh, retrospective that, you know, it, it, mo most people who want one ha have one and you've sort of got to wait for that to be uh, replenished. And yet, you know, here's a, a, a big work that comes on the market and needs to be sold. That's uh, yeah, that one person who got it for two million uh, is feeling good about that that sale. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I totally, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head of what I've been saying the last few months. Well, I mean, that's going to be a, a, an interesting thing for the market to have to deal with, right? Because then everyone's fighting that tape having to, to, to address these kinds of th things and explain to people either to get them in and, and competing for it or to you know uh, deal with it in, in selling privately. 
Gentlemen, thank you for all the uh, free education. It's always a pleasure. Love to. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence podcast is edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. Come back next week. And don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io.